If you're new this morning, we want to invite you really specifically to check out the other two messages in this series because I know we've all been sick. I'm still a little sick and maybe you've missed the last couple of weeks and maybe you're watching online and, uh, and you're just jumping into this sermon. But I really encourage you uh, to head on to npfcc.org and check out our first two in this series. Why Go was the name of the first one and, uh, and uh, or called to go, I should say, and then prayer was the second one, the one Pastor Ken preached last week. They really set up the context for the series. But the bottom line, we're calling the series Go 2020. And the bottom line of the series is that we have all been uh, placed with a call and a purpose on our lives. All of us, that is, who claim to be a Jesus follower, who would say that we are Christians, who have taken that step and, and got baptized and, and came up out of those waters and decided and pledged our allegiance to Jesus All of those of us, and I'm not assuming that every single one of us in this room are, that's okay, you're on a journey somewhere and we're glad you're here. If you're listening online and you're not there, that's okay, I'm glad you're watching online. But but for all of us who call themselves Jesus followers, there's an undeniable calling and a purpose place in our lives, and that is to go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's the call that Jesus gave to his original disciples before he ascended into heaven. That call still remains with us today. And so to encourage us to step into this purpose, on the first week, Pastor Ken had us uh, had, had this card sitting on some of our seats, and maybe this card was sitting on your seat as you walked in today. Maybe you filled it out, and that's great. Uh, but we kind of give you an overview of the series, We're talking about prayer, pr- praying for those who are, are, are lost and caring for those who are lost. And then next week, we'll be talking about sharing with those who are lost. And on the back side of that card, it's got three slots for three names that you might be praying every day at 3 p.m. that can encourage you to set an alarm on your phone every day at 3 p.m. and then encourage you to write those three names of people on the colorful balls that we've got over here. And if you've not had an opportunity to either write on this card or set your alarm on your phone for 3 p.m. for those three names that you'll be praying for or write their names on those, I would just encourage you to do that at some point. We know that it's working because uh, there was a wedding last Sunday at 3 p.m., and uh, everyone's phone went off who was at the wedding. And so right at the beginning of it. So we know that it's working. And uh, we thank you for part- partnering with us in that. Mine goes off every day at three. And it's just a great reminder. It's a pause in my day. Ah, God, I'm just going to re- reflect and pray and just ask you to work. And it's, then it just sharpens my mind and, and helps me look and, and, and perceive opportunities that I might have to share my faith with them. But listen. This evangelism idea, this like sharing our faith with other people idea is a scary one, kind of like myself included. My goodness, if I were to uh, list a, a list of gifts that I have, that would be on the very bottom. So I get it. But this calling circumvents Enneagram personality tests or, or anything like that or age or gender or race or sex. This calling is for all of us. And so, uh, but I love, how, I love how Pastor Ken set it up originally because he really said, listen, we are not doing this alone. First of all, the scripture says that he does it with us and that I, that I will be with you to the very end of the age. And second of all, that God is just doing the heavy lifting. It says so. Paul says so in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, I planted the seed, but Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. Right? God's doing the real work here. And then it says further down in that passage that uh, we are co-workers with Christ. I had this illustrated for me in a, in a really cute way this week. And so if you're more of a visual learner, this is what it looks like for us to partner with God. Check it out. I'm doing it. You're doing it? Yes. 
Okay, you want to put it in there? Mm -hmm. Awesome, bud. Thanks for your help, dude. I appreciate it. You're doing such a good job. Thank you, buddy. So, you know, let's just be, uh, let's just be very clear. Like God is doing the majority of the work here. Uh, God's the one doing the photosynthesis, if you will. We're just planting and watering. And, uh, but you know what the, the good news is about that is that our good, good father uh, just enjoys partnering with us. You know, for, for, for me to be out there doing that with Levi, it, it's boring doing it by myself, but doing it with him, it's just, it's cute and enjoyable. And God has planned it this way for us to work together in this way. And he wants to use us as a part of the process. But all we have to do is be willing to, to pray, to care for people, and to share when, when it's necessary. And, uh, and that's what we're trying to warm our hearts toward in this series. And so last week, Pastor Ken talked about prayer. And this week, we're talking about caring for others. And so when I say caring for others, I'm saying to love others in a way with our, with our words and our works uh, in a way that connects them to the heart of God. We want to love others with our words and our works in a way that connects them to the heart of God. That's just what we want to do. That's what caring for others with a, with a Christ-like mindset looks like. And therefore, our goal then is to love others in a way that makes, makes them ask why. We want to love others so boldly that they ask us, why are you loving us the way you do? We don't want to love them in a way that makes them say thanks, right? There's a lot of that going out out and around today. There's a, there's a popularity to being nice and, and caring for other and, and taking out someone's trash or do, doing some random act of kindness. That's, that's kind of pervasive in our culture. It comes from God, by the way, but that is pervasive in our culture. But what is different? What can we do as believers uh, that would go down the next level, that would love people in such a way as to make them ask why. To do this, I really think we have to uh, love people in a way that goes beyond what's just expected, right? We have to go beyond something that is just expected. You know, for, uh, Peter says in, in his uh, epistle, he says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they might see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Meaning, live such good lives around the people that don't know Jesus, that don't yet have a relationship with him, that they might see what you're doing and have a connection and connect the dots to uh, maybe God is real. The same God that is working in their life to, bring, to do good in you. Maybe that God is real. And maybe that God would warm their heart through your good service uh, for them to one day have a relationship with Jesus. And then uh, Peter continues on in the next chapter, uh, and he says this, and we've, a lot of us have heard this verse before, always be prepared to give uh, a reason, uh, to, an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. So the obvious implication here is that we are loving people in such a way with those good works that they would eventually ask the question, why? And are we ready to give an answer uh, for that when they do ask the question? So the good news is that Jesus has something to say on the subject, and it's a story that I think we will all know very well, so don't tune me out because you've heard this one before, but I hope to uncover some new things in it. But you know it, even if you're brand new here this morning, you've, you've heard of this story before. Even if you're just watching online for the first time, you've never been to an online church service or whatever, you've heard this story before because it's made its way into the common vernacular of our culture. It's a story of the Good Samaritan. Right, we've heard this story before. 
But I'm going to challenge maybe some of our common assumptions about how the story develops and some of the key pieces in the story, because I think Jesus does something radical with the story that I hadn't seen before. And just diving in, I'm so excited to share some of these things with you. Uh, But this story, I believe, is like downright scandalous at its core. And uh, and so I'm I'm ready to jump in, and I know you are too. So turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. And if you've got your Bibles, great, because I really think looking at the text as a whole, the chunk of that paragraph, the whole story, will really give you context, especially because I'm going to be kind of going through verse by verse, and it's helpful to have some context around that. But if you don't have that, Scripture will be on the screens. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the back. It's our gift to you. Take it and keep it. Uh, But let's jump in. Verse 25, Luke chapter 10. says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. (laughs) I love that. Now, If you've read the Bible before, if you've read the Gospels before, you know it's going to be a good story when someone, when an expert in the law stands up to test Jesus. Because as loving as Jesus is, uh, one of the things that makes his blood boil more than just about anything is a religious leader who uses his position to, to exert power or control over somebody else, or a religious leader who uses their religiousness as a mask to cover up a hidden motive inside. And so when someone rises up to test Jesus, it's like about time for Jesus to probably do like a little um, Jedi mind trick on them and flip something on its head. A mic drop is imminent somewhere in here, right? So we're going to get there. But then the religious leader goes on to test Jesus and he says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Really common question, question that we still ask today, probably number one question out there. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, for them, it wasn't just life eternal, but that meant real life. What does it mean to live the full life right here, right now in this context? How does it look like for the kingdom of heaven to be the kingdom of earth? So both how do I get the most out of this life and how do I make it so that I can live this way for eternity in heaven? And so popular question, and so Jesus turns to this religious leader knowing that this this is a test, right, all along. And so he flips it around. Instead of answering it directly, he says this. He says, turns, it turns it back to the person. What is written in the law? He said, how do you read it? So he wants the guy to give an answer before Jesus gives his answer. So good rabbis, like good Jedis, always answer questions with questions. So that's what he does here. And so the religious leader answered the question. Says, I believe to inherit eternal life. You have to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the first one of those two commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, uh, is found in the Shema, Deuteronomy 6. And it's, it's one of those passages that a, a, a pious Jew, a religious Jew, would know so well. They would have it memorized by those who are really faithful. They would recite it every morning. And at least if you went to synagogue every week, you would hear it every week. The priest would read it out loud every week. And so if you were to pick one of the greatest commandments, that is it. Number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second one, though, was a little bit debated. And maybe that's where the test uh, laid in right there. Maybe that's where he was trying to test what, what else is required to have this eternal life. And so the religious leader uses an answer that Jesus has given before. Now, Jesus didn't say this in the, in the book of Luke, but elsewhere in the Gospels, you might remember people coming up to Jesus and asking him, what are the two greatest commandments? And Jesus himself said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
So maybe this religious leader is playing like the little game back at Jesus. Who knows? Who knows the, the kind of craftiness in here? But maybe the religious leader is like, well, since you didn't answer my question and you asked me the question when I asked the question, maybe I'll just give you your answer back to you, see what happens. So the religious leader goes, okay, uh, love God and love others. So what happens next? Jesus goes, you have answered correctly. Ding, ding, ding. You win the game. Do this and you will live. End of story, right? Love God, love others. That's how you inherit eternal life. And I just picture, you know the story's not ending. If you have your Bibles open, there's more to the story, right? But, uh, and Jesus knows the story's not done because the religious leader came there to test him, so there's more. So I just picture Jesus in this going like, okay, do this and you will live. And then like starts to walk away and says, okay, have a great day. That was a great lesson. Knowing that there's more baiting the religious leader to like ask the real question. And so the text goes on and it says, but he wanted to justify himself. And so he goes, uh, 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 Jesus, hold on, <clears throat> sorry, before we go away, one last thing, just one last question, minor detail, um, who is my neighbor? Ah, there's the question. There's the question behind the question, right? There's always a question behind the question. Now, Luke gives away this religious leader's motive. He says he wants to justify himself, but, and, and that says a lot in and of itself, that he wanted to justify himself. To justify ourselves means we take what we currently have, right? My life, my beliefs, uh, my ideas about the world. And then you go shopping for a version of the truth that matches what I already believe, what I already feel, what I already do, right? And we do this a lot like that religious leader. I know I do. But we really want someone to just tell us, uh, Devin, if you just keep on doing the same things you're doing, you're great. You don't need to change anything, right? We want a doctor's appointment where they do all the scans and they do all the tests and they look us over and they go, you know what? If you just keep eating the exact same way, if you just exercise as little as you do, you'll be perfectly fine, right? There's nothing else you need to do. You're good. Just go. You live till 110. You're great. But that's not the way the kingdom of God works, right? And so as this religious leader is trying to justify himself, trying to say, who is my neighbor? He's trying to bring what he currently does, and he wants to limit who he loves. He wants to put boundaries on who he loves. And that just doesn't work in the kingdom of God. When we, when we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, it says all these things will be added unto us. That's not shopping for a version of the truth. That's saying, God, I, I'm going to come to you and I want your version of truth first. And then I pray that you would give me the strength and the courage to rise up in my life, match your life, match your values. That was not what the religious leader was doing here. But Jesus bites and he goes, okay, you want to know who your neighbor is? I've got a story for you. So starting in verse 30, it says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, this is a parable, but it's also a very realistic picture of something that could have very likely happened, probably did happen in that time. Jesus is talking about a road from Jerusalem to Jericho that was a real road, a kind of a narrow road, a vulnerable road, a dangerous road with lots of caves along the way that robbers would commonly hide in and then come out to attack those at dawn or dusk or sometime along the road where they were most vulnerable, rob them, steal their stuff, and leave them half dead. So this could very well have actually happened. 
This road was also commonly populated by Jews, most often. It was not a road that was really populated by other people groups. Jews would use this to get from Jerusalem to Jericho, which was kind of like the suburb of Jerusalem, the more wealthy city. Most people lived there but did their business or religious stuff in Jerusalem. So they were traveling home. And, uh, and so we know that this man that was beaten was most likely a Jew. And that's important in the story as we'll get there. But then the story goes on, verse 31. A priest happened to be going along the way down the same road when he saw the man. We know what happens, right? The priest passes by on the other side. It says, so too, a Levite came to the man who was lying there, and and Levite, too, came and passed him on the other side, left a distance around. Now, a priest is a modern-day pastor, and Levite is a modern-day worship pastor or uh, associate pastor. So Ken and Devin get done with church on a Sunday morning, going home, and happen upon this dead guy. Now, according to our laws, according to our religious uh, beliefs, even if our, if our shadow touched uh, something that was dead, we didn't know that he was still alive. He had, the word half dead there means someone who appears to be dead. So we think there's a dead person along the road. And so we go, well, according to my religious beliefs, I can't touch something dead, or else I might be defiled religiously. So we go so far around him that my shadow... I think I'm getting it right, doesn't touch the dead man. So the Levite does the same thing. I want to make sure I obey the law. But okay, but here's the deal. We know it's not going to interfere with their religious duties because they're going from Jerusalem to Jericho. That means they're done. If it's on a Sunday, they're like done preaching. They're done leading worship. They're done whatever, doing whatever they do. They're not going to get defiled and therefore disqualify them to do the religious stuff that they have to do. They could still be defiled and then clean themselves up. There's a process for that in time for Sabbath the next week, right? But moreover, we know it's not even the Sabbath day Because no one, no righteous Jew, would walk from Jerusalem to Jericho on the Sabbath day because that road is too long. They would break the Sabbath rules walking that mileage uh, because they can't do that much work on a Sabbath day, right? So we know it's not Sunday. It's like a Wednesday. Uh, They're they're going home from work. And so let's just like be real. Like Devin doesn't want to get blood on his skinny jeans and Ken just wants to watch some football, right? This is a personal comfort issue. It is not a a religious issue. The excuse is not valid in this story, and Jesus is clear about that. Whatever excuse you have to to not help this man is not a valid excuse according to the law. It's a personal preference thing. But we can all we can all kind of like sympathize with that, right? I mean, like, when's the last time you, uh, you, you gave food to a, a homeless person and sat and ate there with them? Or when's the last time you um, uh, changed somebody's tire or, or parked by someone who had an accident? Maybe some of you do that, but a lot of us go like, uh, next man up, right? Somebody else, well, somebody probably already called 911. Uh, somebody uh, probably will come, and I see one car starting to slow down, so they've probably got it. I don't want to do it. Like, let's just be honest. Like, our personal comfort level gets in the way of service all the time, right? And so that's what Jesus is painting this picture of. And so, gosh, who will? Who will be the hero? Who will step in and heal this man who is clearly in need? He's not dead yet. He's half dead. Someone needs to help him. Who will do it? Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. When he went to him, he bandaged his wounds. He poured oil and wine. He put the man on his own donkey. He brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. 
Now, this is where the story turns from like mildly offensive to downright outrageous, uh, nearly heretical. You know, if you, if you bypass the priest and the Levite as the heroes in this story, that's disrespectful enough. But then to make a Samaritan the hero uh, would, be, would be outlandish. To put it in context today, that would be like, uh, like us saying a, a radical Muslim came across a Christian on the road and, and bandaged his wounds and took care of him, right? That is not the person that is supposed to be the hero of the story. That person is supposed to be the enemy of our story, And in that day, they had sharp disagreements about theological principles. They just didn't like each other. They were different uh, ethnic groups. They were in different categories completely. They didn't cross-pollinate. They did not get along together at all. And this Samaritan didn't just like call an Uber and get get him a ride. He took him himself. He touched him and bandaged his wounds and got down on his hands and knees and cared for him in an incredibly intimate way. Something that whatever religious laws around that, he totally didn't care about. And he bypassed all of that. So a radical story spoken to a religious leader who was probably knocked on his feet a little bit and uh, off of his feet a little bit. And then, and then Jesus, like without much time to breathe, he says to the religious leader, which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robbers? Could a question with a more obvious answer ever be asked, right? Okay, let me go through the three. <clears throat> the priest. Nope, the Levite, definitely not, same as the priest, they did nothing. The Samaritan, yeah, he did everything, so therefore, yeah, it would be the Samaritan. So why does Jesus even ask the question? He asks such obvious questions sometimes. And I think that's because he really wanted this religious leader to say the answer to the question. You you parents in the room, have you ever like just wanted, you ask a question to your kid, you, you know they know the answer, you know you know the answer, you just want them to say it out loud. Maybe you're a teacher. It's a teaching principle. You just want someone to put out into the universe uh, with their own words and their own way the truth and the validity of the story because it sinks deeper as if we can say it. So Jesus wants this religious leader to say it. Say the word. Say Samaritan. The crowd pooling around him would just be waiting. Is this religious leader going to say the Samaritan was the hero of the story? Was he going to admit that? Was he going to fall into maybe Jesus' Jedi trick that he just pulled on him? Religious leader is not stupid. He's wise too. Check out his answer. Verse 37, the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. I just find this fascinating. He didn't say the Samaritan. He can't say the name Samaritan. It'd be like vile on his lips. It'd be like a cuss word coming out of his mouth. And part of me thinks that by saying the one who had mercy on him, the religious leader was just trying to find a way to compartmentalize uh, or, or, um, or conceptualize, rather, the meaning of the story. If, this, if the hero of the story can be mercy and not the Samaritan, maybe we can play with that a little bit. Maybe we can massage that, that bullet point out a little bit, and maybe I can apply that to my life. But if you're really saying that the Samaritan is the hero of the story, man, the, the implications of that are radical. That, that flies in the face of thousands of years of religious assumptions and practices. And so Jesus' response, go and do likewise. Man, it's hard for us sometimes to put ourselves in the cultural place, but to hear those words, go and do likewise, likewise, like the Samaritan did, that would have been that mic drop moment. Go be like that Samaritan. Jesus is saying, you know what, Mr. Religious Leader, sir, to answer your original question, how do you inherit eternal life? Just be a little bit less like you and your friends and be a little bit more like this Samaritan. 
be a little bit less of you and a little bit more of the person that you don't want to love. And did you notice the other little trick that, uh, that Jesus pulled on this guy? The secondary question, the justifying question that this religious leader asked, who, was, who is my neighbor, right? Essentially, what kinds of people am I allowed not to love? And did you catch that Jesus didn't answer that question? Uh, so so the snare, this trap that the, the, the religious leader is trying to set open for Jesus to step in and catch him in something, Jesus doesn't even answer uh, those questions, doesn't even answer to fall into that trap. It's so wise. And so Jesus doesn't answer who is my neighbor, but rather shares a story on how to be neighborly, to how to clothe yourself with neighborliness instead of trying to approach things first from the, from the perspective of how can I limit who I love? No, just how do I be a loving person, period. And that's the heart of Jesus' story. And I think this story has so much richness for us, and I want to unpack it a little bit uh, today. There's so much more, and there's so many layers to this, but these four kind of came, floated to the top as I was studying the text, and I want to share it with you. And the first one is this, that I think one of the first lessons we get from the Samaritan is that we need to figure out how to be interruptible. Be interruptible. Now, man, if someone has like a full-size mirror and can drag it up on the stage, I would be happy to preach to myself looking into this thing for this bullet point because this is one of those areas I struggle with so much. And I think you would relate with me, the, mo- the most of you would relate with me in this, that our schedules are so booked back to back to back, so compartmentalized. If I don't fix, finish this in this block, then it rolls into the next block and then I get stressed and pressured. And I struggle, and a lot of you guys know in my recovery journey, anger is one of those things for me that I still struggle with. One of the triggers for anger is busyness. It's not having enough breathing room. So what Jesus is saying here is slow the heck down, would you, right? Take your pace down a few notches and leave time and space for what I want to do through you. Uh, the, The Samaritan, whether he was busy or not, did not let his schedule get in the way of helping not only did he take much longer trans, getting from Jerusalem to Jericho by putting somebody else, bandaging someone up, which would have taken hours, and putting him on their donkey, then he had to walk, would have taken him longer. And then the text implies that he stayed overnight with the man and then left to be on his journey, and then he was going to come back. I mean, the time was crazy that he spent with this man. And so if you're going to love people in a way that would make them ask why, I think the story tells us very clearly that we have to give people our most precious resource, which is our time. Now, I do want to get practical for a second because you may hear me say that and go, Devin, there's just no way that I can possibly care for every half-dead guy that I see along the road or every person who is, who is going through something significant in my life. There's so many issues, so many ways to help, so many burdens in this life. How can we possibly spend that much time on every one of them? Ironically, to answer this question, Twice in the last year, I've been to conferences where the speaker has used the same passage and has kind of picked it apart and shared some insights on how to put some boundaries around loving others. And I love this. I think it's so insightful, and I want to share it with you because I think Jesus wants us to know how to love people's radically, uh, people radically, but at the same time, uh, be, be cautious about how much you give out. And I think there's some real life in here. And so Galatians chapter 6, verse 2 says this, and you may have heard this passage. I'm going to put both this one and then verse 5 up on the screens for you to see. But the first one says this, it says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. You might have heard that one before. And that verse, it really does sound a whole lot like the story of the Good Samaritan, right? Carry each other's burdens. I mean, literally this guy picked him up, put him on his donkey, transported him, 
and to an end, carry each other's burdens, and you fulfill the law of Christ. And certainly that's what Jesus was doing through the story. That sounds a lot like it. But then verse 5, you go down a few verses, and it goes, for each one should carry their own load. So you're like, okay, uh, Paul, excuse me, like what, what are you talking about? You just told me to carry each other's burdens, but now you're telling me to like, carry my own load. What's the difference? Well, there's a really insightful difference in the word burden and load here. And, and the Greek words for both are really distinctive and they mean something substantial. In verse 2, it's talking about the burdens that people carry are the extremely heavy weights that one person cannot carry by themselves. It's required to be carried in community. You know, if you have a giant boulder that you can't move by yourself, but if you get four, five, six, seven people to push it together, it can be moved. That's the word used for burden in verse 2. And then the word used for load in verse 5 is the word used for more of like a backpack-sized load. Yeah, it's heavy. Yeah, it'll be hard, but it can be manageable individually. And so what, what Paul is saying here, and I think Jesus would just affirm this too, is that we have this amazing, incredible obligation to help people push boulders in their lives when, when those certain things come up, to have incredible compassion to rally alongside in community and help people out. But at the same time, the smaller loads that we carry on a day-to-day basis, there's a responsibility for us uh, to, to, to use the, the grace of God that he has given us and responsibly carry them ourselves. We can't, care, we can't share all of these little loads with everyone all the time or else that would burden other people all the time. If we're responsible to carry our own load, then we'll have uh, the freedom and the capacity uh, to jump on board and help people uh, carry, push their own burdens when the time comes. A burden, then, is something significant, substantial, but also uh, uh, timely. It's also something that doesn't last their whole lives. For example, the, the loss of a loved one might be a burden that someone would, would be going through, a crushing diagnosis, the loss of a job, or going through the beginning stages or some stages of a, of a divorce, right? These are things that don't last forever, but they are huge. These are, these are burdens uh, that, that need community uh, to get through them. And it could be good things too, like having a baby, moving, um, raising three crazy toddlers, right? That is a burden too heavy for any two parents to, to, uh, to push. <laughs> but but uh, even in these situations, it's not an all-the-time thing. It, not all of us can meet all of them all the time. And so maybe you yourself are in a season where you're trying to push one of these burdens yourself, these heavy loads. And so maybe you're not in the right place to help somebody else move their burden. That's okay. There's a season for that. But we do have to, like the Samaritan did, is when we're passing by situations in our lives and we look at them, can we just at least ask ourselves the questions, why not me? Why would I not be the one to step in and help them push this burden right now? Because the priest and the Levite said, why me? Maybe somebody else can, but I think the question needs to be asked, why not me? And that comes from an interruptible posture. That comes from a posture that takes time, an unhurried pace that has the eyes to see needs around them when they're there. The other thing that I feel like the Samaritan tells us is that we've got to learn how to care a little bit less to care a little bit more. And and it's kind of a weird sentence, so I'll, I'll explain that a little bit. But I was reading this and I got to the feeling like I care a whole lot about stuff that doesn't matter. I don't know if you're with me in that. 
But I care a whole lot about little things. I care about keeping my car clean. I care, I care about saving up for stuff. We, we care about, you know, saving up for that next thing or that next toy or that RV or that boat or whatever. And we care about um, socioeconomic lines and things like that, even though we'd never say we're prejudiced or, or racist. We, we know we show we care about those things when we're more comfortable in certain groups than others, right? We care about wanting to be right. We care deeply about what others believe or say or do, even if they don't directly affect us. We're bothered by that. It rubs us wrong. We care about those things. Again, those things have no lasting eternal value. They're just there. They're just annoyances in our lives that, that creep in and cause our minds to be consumed uh, by, by all that stuff. And I just can't help but sense that the Samaritan could have had so many cares uh, going on, so many questions and concerns about what he did, but he didn't have them. He shed them. He could have uh, cared about his own personal safety. He could have been robbed equally as well, helping this man. He didn't care about his own finances, his own time, um, all that stuff. He, he, he had a lack of care for. He didn't care what it would look like to his friends back home or maybe his family. He said, where did you spend that money? Um, what did you do? Why, why are you a day late to this appointment? He didn't care about the beliefs or opinions of others that would have kept others at an arm length arm's length. He didn't see color or race or religion or class or character. And because of that, he was confident in his own skin, in his own journey to reach out when the opportunity afforded itself. He saw this man as an equal because he did not care about the other things. And I, I, just, I just think there is such a confident boldness afforded to those who have no fear of man right, who, who refuse to be defined by worldly labels, who deny the common assumptions that people make about them based on geography and nationality or a thousand other external markers. And it doesn't have to be arrogant or spiteful. In fact, the, the Samaritan teaches us how to do this. If we truly don't care about those things, it will actually lead to compassion and understanding and a willingness to travel with somebody totally unlike us. I know for me personally, I could use a healthy dose, dose of that in my life. And so we have to ask ourselves, what would I need to care less about in order to care for them more? Next, um, I think the Good Samaritan tells me as well, if I'm trying to love somebody in a way that would make them ask why, I say that sometimes you need to be the neighbor. Now, let me define this a little bit. Hear what I'm saying? I'm not saying that you need to be neighborly but be the neighbor himself. Now go back, think about, think about the original command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor. I'm, I'm encouraging us to be the neighbor. Be the Jewish man in the story. Okay, follow me here. I'm gonna melt your minds a little bit because I melted mine. Would this story still not preach if the Samaritan and the Jew changed places in the story? This is the parable of the good Jew right? So a Samaritan is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho and falls by the wayside and is robbed. And then along comes a priest, passes him on the other side. Along comes a Levite, passes him on the other side. Along comes a good Jew, James from Jericho, let's say, right? And he has compassion on the Samaritan and heals him and, and takes him on his donkey and tr uh, gives him a place in the inn and heals his wounds and all that. That would still preach, still be a little radical, still be outside of the box for sure. You don't touch a Samaritan man, you, 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 but at least it would have been a story about uh, having real compassion about someone that, that, that you don't like, 
and, and being the one that is good enough to muster up the courage to do that. But that's the, so isn't that the story, what the story is about, really just loving somebody that doesn't, uh, that doesn't love you uh, or the, some, loving someone that you hate? Well, not really. The parable of the Good Samaritan is a story about letting somebody that you don't love love you. See the difference there? And then learning how to love like they loved you. Now that is a story that is turned upside down, right? How much harder is that? Now, I, it might not be likely that one of us might be loved by someone we hate or someone that hates us. That, I mean, that's it, hard, but you might. And you might experience that in different subtle ways of different degrees. Now, maybe it's just being loved by someone who doesn't follow Jesus, and we'll get there in a second. But can God do that? Can God use someone else, even your unbelieving neighbor, to care for you? Yeah, God can do that. And sometimes he uses people you think are the least qualified, least likely to show his love for you. And I think there's an overarching principle here. Again, Pastor Ken uh, used it in his first sermon. He said that God is working on people all the time. Second uh, Peter 3.9 says that, that God wants everyone to come to the knowledge of the truth. So God is working on people all the time. I truly believe this. No matter what label you come under, no matter what religion you come under, God is working in us to try to point us to the truth. There's an undeniable uh, image placed in our hearts that's calling us back to the truth of God. Sometimes it's hard to find based on our upbringing and whatnot, but God is constantly working in our hearts. And so, uh, uh, but that doesn't just mean that anybody anywhere can just kind of do whatever they want, believe whatever they want, and just love, and God's okay with that. Clearly, Jesus spent some time with a Samaritan woman at the well, and he said, you Samaritans worship what you don't know. We Jews worship what we do know, for salvation comes from the Jews. There's truth in here that needs to be abided by. But why can't God use someone who is along the way, who is journeying somewhere, and the love that he's trying to sow in their hearts and experience themselves, why can't they disseminate some of that love to others around them? Who knows what God might have been doing in this Samaritan's life upstream that we don't know anything about? Maybe on the other side of the wall, maybe God had been working in him to wrestle with his faith. Maybe he wanted to know more about Judaism. Maybe he wanted to find a bridge into the community. I don't know. But we do know is sometimes God uses unlikely people. And so we need to realize that we are not the sole owners of, of grace and truth, right? Because, man, Christians can be like super annoying sometimes about that. We think we have all the answers and we think we, we know everything. We know the one who does, but oftentimes we're on the journey too. So let's just admit that we are not the owners of, of love and truth. We know the source though. And so we help people uh, point them there. Because check this out. God might be using their love to you to build a relational bridge for you. And maybe down the road, you might have an opportunity to reciprocate that love in a godly way. But even if you don't, maybe you will have the opportunity to ask them why they are loving you the way they are. Maybe they don't even know. They just feel something. They just feel an urge to do that. Maybe they do know. Maybe they have an answer. Whatever way, you might be able to give them an alternative and you might be able to tell them, you know, I think I know why you love so much. It's because your inner being is imprinted with love. It's imprinted to mimic love. You were born with somebody else's image burned in your heart. And when you share love, you are most connected with that image. And though you haven't met that image yet, 
he found you, and he's calling you home. Your creator is not mom and dad, but Jesus himself. And the same love that you're giving out, Jesus wants to give you and more. And he wants to share that with you for all of eternity. So you might be able to help people answer the question that they've never asked. Why do I feel this urge is calling to love others? And the bottom line is that if, if we're going to care for people, right, we, we have to put ourselves in a relational place to give them the freedom to love us too, right? We have to be the neighbor. Because it's more, since it's more blessed to give than receive, maybe Jesus is blessing them as they give to us, right? So be the neighbor. Now lastly, I'm going to take some minor creative freedom with this point, but it's a principle elevated elsewhere in Scripture, so I think I'm safe. Uh, but when learning how to love people in such a way as to make them ask why, there may be no greater gift that you can give them than your tears, now, we don't know how emotionally involved the Samaritan was with this man. We, uh, we certainly think that the Samaritan probably didn't know much about the man's story, you know, along the way due to the shallow breathing and all. But what we do know is that the Samaritan cleaned his wounds. He saw and knew and touched every one of them. He disinfected them. He gently poured his wine deep into every laceration, comforting every wince as the alcohol met this man's exposed nerves. And then he rubbed ointment on each cut and bandaged every one. He put pressure on the bleeding and crafted splints for the broken bones. Then the Samaritan put him on his own donkey and therefore himself had to walk this journey from Jerusalem to Jericho. Miles and miles they walked, likely needing to give extra support as the man shifted along the way. The Samaritan journeyed with this man at his very worst. The Samaritan brought him to a place where he could rest and heal completely. The Samaritan stayed with him overnight and then promised to return to ensure he got every last drop of care that he needed. Though the story doesn't say this, all I know is that to do that requires profound empathy. I was working at a church in Colorado years ago, and my pastor at the time, Steve McCarthy, who I'd only known about two good years at, at that moment, came into my little backstage studio office that I had set up at the time, and uh, Tina and I had just miscarried our first child. And I'm just sitting there, honestly, a little emotionless, a little... Uh, apathetic, not knowing what to think or feel. And as he sat with me and just listened to me share, he began to cry before I did. And, and so he uh, awoke my tears. And, and in that moment, that was the most caring gift that he could have possibly given me in that moment. He didn't feel sorry for me. He hurt with me and journeyed with me, and continued to journey with me for years to come. One of the most caring gifts that you can ever give somebody, something that may make them ask why more than anything else, is to give enough attention to their personal story that you feel what they feel. You laugh when they laugh, you cry when they cry. Maybe someone on your heart, or someone on your heart, maybe one of your three, that you could just schedule a coffee with in the next week or the next month with the sole purpose of just learning more about their 
real story, their real heart. Um, and that's how to care for somebody in a way that connects them to the Father heart of God. But you know, as I, as I was describing this manner in which the Samaritan cared for this Jewish man, I, I was stunned at how similar this image is to Jesus. I right, see Jesus in many of the parables finds a way to place himself inside the story, now, sometimes in very unexpected places, but there's only one person I know who would look over every wound, bandage all my cuts and sores, pour wine to disinfect in, in my wounds, make splints for my broken bones, and wrap me up and place me and transport me to a place of healing and walk beside me along the way. There's only one person I know that would empty out his resources and give me the room that should have been his and promise to come back one day and pay the rest in full. There's only one person I know of all the people in my life who have told me, if I could just switch places with you, Devin, I would take what you're going through right now. There's only one person that actually did that. And his name is Jesus. And so maybe, uh, you know, today you're, you are a one of these people that um, just needs Jesus. One of our prayer warriors, Rick Locke, as he was praying over these names over here, he found one that just said me written on it. And maybe you are the one that you have not allowed the love of Jesus to penetrate your heart. Maybe you thought Jesus was an adversary before, but maybe you need to let Jesus be the one to love you. And when you ask why, he will simply remind you that you are his child and that you are loved so much that he would die for you, that he would journey for you, that he would take your scars, that he would take your wounds, your illness, your infirmity, and you would carry all those things to the cross, which was your place, but instead he exchanged that for you so that you could have a home, a room in heaven to be with him. That's what our God does. That's what his love does for us. And so if that's you, we want to pray for you today. We want to pray with you just as you accept the Lord into your life. And in the next few moments, we're going to share in this time of communion, which allows us to remember this incredible story, the incredible grace of God, the, the piece of bread which represents Christ's body that was broken, his scars, his wounds exposed for you. Taking your place, this cup of juice, which represents his blood, his blood spilled out that was supposed to be ours, but he took it for you. And when we take this and eat this and drink this, we remember his death and we're thankful for the life that he gives us. But if you want to pray with one of us during that, I'm going to invite some of the elders forward. And uh, as we take communion, as we sing this last song, uh, we just want to give God all of our hearts, give back what he's given to us. So let's pray as we head into this time of fellowship with Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for being an incredibly compassionate God, a God who is so merciful, so kind, so good a God who laid down his life for us. We are so grateful, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. And for those who might be far from you right now who have, have never admitted that the love that they have in their heart is, comes from you, God, we just say, God, would we invite you in? God, we recognize the, the author of love and we invite you into a relationship with us in our hearts. 
God, do this work in us. Thank you for your presence. Your wonderful name. Amen.